Good morning. Morning, morning. 24-year-old Amber Van Heck had gone for a routine visit to the Grand Canyon, but it ended up being anything but routine. Because after her visit, she had gone to a gas station to fill her car up, but the cost of gas at that gas station was $2.70 per gallon. So she thought, you know, that's a little too much. Let me just fill in just enough for me to get home. So she partially filled her car, and she left the gas station. Unfortunately, she took a wrong turn, and she ended up getting lost in the desert. So she went round and round in the desert, and soon her car ran out of gas, and it became dark, and she was completely lost. She spent that night in the desert in her car. The next morning, she gets up, arranges rocks on the side of a car in the word help, and waits for somebody to come. Nobody comes. She makes ramen noodles on the dashboard of her car because it's so hot, as she stays in her car for five more days. Eventually, she gets up and realizes this is not going to work, so she walks east for 11 miles till she can get a cell phone signal on her phone. And once she gets a cell phone signal, she calls 911 11 miles later, and they come and rescue her. This morning, we're going to look at a person who was similarly in the desert and had gone for a routine day in the desert, but he had an unexpected adventure uh, while he was carrying on what was a routine day. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Exodus chapter 3, and we will look at the first 14 verses. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. If you can pull up your Bibles on your phone or, or your physical Bibles, we will go through this passage verse by verse, and we will look at what this passage has for us in a sermon entitled, Fire in the Silence. Fire in the Silence. Now, this morning, I would like to tell you five things from this passage, but first I want to give you a little bit of background, and that is in chapter 3, verse 1, the first verse of this passage. Now, Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Let me just give you some background. Moses was born in a Jewish family, but he was a third generation Egyptian. His grandfather had migrated from Israel to Egypt. His father was born in Egypt and he was a third generation Egyptian. Due to some special circumstances, he ended up growing up in the Egyptian palace as a prince. And one of the uniqueness of the Jewish culture is that they maintain their exclusivity, much like many of the Eastern cultures, even Indian culture, they maintain their exclusivity. And one of the ways they do that is by, by marrying only within the culture. So Moses had Egyptian influence, but he had Jewish heritage. Once he was grown up, around 40 years of age, he saw a fight between a Jewish man and an Egyptian, and at that point he decided to side with the Jewish man, even though he had Egyptian culture in him, and he was a third-generation Egyptian. And so he killed the Egyptian who was fighting with the Jewish man. Because of that, he was sent into exile, and he ran away into exile across the wilderness, across the desert, to another side of the desert called Midian. And he lived there. He married the daughter of a pagan priest that was there, and he had a couple kids, and he had taken the job of a shepherd. Now, 40 years later, we have this verse, 
which says, Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Can you believe that? 40 years he's been there, and he doesn't even have his own flock. He was still managing the flock of his father-in-law. Unlike his forefather Jacob, who in 20 years completely stole everything that his father-in-law had. I'm sure there's a middle ground where you have no ambition to steal anything from your father-in-law versus stealing everything from your (laughs) father-in-law. So um, he was now in Horeb, also called as Mount Sinai. He was staying in Midian, which if you look in the map is on the east side, and he had gone west and southwest and come into the wilderness of Sinai where he was, and he was weeks away from home. But he was managing his father-in-law's flock of sheep, and he was pursuing grassy slopes as he fed the sheep. Let me tell you five things from this passage. The first thing is the attention. And that's in verses 2 through 5. The attention was through the burning bush. Let me read verses for you. Exodus chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Don't come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place you, on which you are standing is holy ground. The Hebrew word for this word bush is a relatively small thorny shrub about a few feet in diameter. And Moses had been in the desert for days and nights and he knew how to keep warm in a cold desert night. And he knew how quickly bushes burn. So he was struck by the random burning of a bush. I mean, there was nobody nearby. This was a desert. There was nobody nearby. The random burning of a bush and the bush does not get burnt up. And God called him twice and said, Moses, Moses. This in Semitic culture is what is called as a repetition of endearment. So when Moses heard his name twice, he knew that he was being addressed by a person who loved him. God gets Moses' attention through the burning bush. God knows how to get your attention. For Moses, it was the burning bush. For us... God gets our attention through various ways. How does God get our attention? Can it be a burning bush now? I don't think so. Because in the West, we try to rationalize everything. So if we saw a burning bush, or you heard about somebody that saw a burning bush that didn't burn up, you would either try to give a rational explanation, or you would say that the person was crazy. So how does God get our attention? Through failure, through tragedy, through sickness, through failure, through disease, through failure. If God wants your attention, he will get it. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So first, God gets his attention, and secondly, he gives him an assignment. So in verses 6 through 10, and this assignment is a promise of freedom. 
So in verse 6 it reads, He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And God gives a fourfold response to his people. You should understand that his people now have been slaves in this land of Egypt for almost 400 years. And this is the response of God. Let me read two verses, 7 and 8. Exodus chapter 3, 7 and 8. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings, so I have come down to deliver them. What's a fourfold response of God? I have seen, I have heard, I am aware, I have come down. And when it says God has come down, it goes beyond the plan for rescue. It is the actual rescue mission itself. And it says God has come down. But when God told this to Moses, Moses would have had two questions. The first question was, why didn't God come earlier? Why didn't God come earlier? It's been 400 years of slavery and torture. Why didn't God come earlier? According to opendoorsuk.org, a website that monitors worldwide Christian persecution, North Korea is the worst country to be in, to be a Christian in. A former guard in North Korean labor camps said that guards could do whatever they wanted with prisoners. Nobody would ask. Hia Wu is a Christian that escaped after she spent three years in a North Korean jail. She said that the torture was so brutal, and she said, every day it was as if God was pouring out all ten plagues on us simultaneously. That's how hard it was. But God also comforted me and brought a secret fellowship into existence. Every Sunday we would gather in the toilets to pray. There are an estimated 50,000 to 70,000 Christians in labor camps in North Korea. Every single one of them will be tortured, and most of them will die there. Where is God for these prisoners? Where is God? Why didn't God come earlier? This is a question related to why is there suffering? And I'm not going to explore it this morning because we talked about it in a previous sermon from a few months ago entitled The Fulcrum of Pain. But that would be the question that Moses would have thought about. The second question that Moses would have thought about is why should he succeed? Let me read verses 9 and 10. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore come now and I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses would have been super happy that God has finally come down and is going to rescue his people. But then God drops a bombshell and says, you are going to go and do the job. Moses was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> because at that time, the superpower was Egypt. The superpower was Egypt, and now the task is to go to the superpower of that day, go to the king of Egypt, and say, I'm going to take all your slaves away. It was a ridiculously impossible task. Moses had tried to be a hero on a small scale 40 years ago when he tried to kill the Egyptian and save the Israelite, but that had backfired. And now, what was the reason for him to succeed? 
now on a much larger scale. The assignment that God gives us is beyond human ability, and so he comes with excuses, and that's my third point, the antinomy, excuses that he gives, and that we see in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? At this point, to be fair to Moses, he wasn't trying to get out of the job. The, the phrase, who am I, is, is just a cultural phrase to express humility. The two other times that we see that phrase in the Old Testament is both with David when he says it to Saul, who am I that you're doing this? And to God, who am I that you're doing this? Both expressing humility. But in the life of Moses, later we see him giving excuses. And let me read some verses. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 1, Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say the Lord has not appeared to you. Then God gives a reason why that's not true. And then again, Moses complains a few verses later in verse 10. Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then God gives an explanation and gives a solution to the problem. Then he complains again. Verse 13. He said, please, Lord, send anybody else. And then the Bible says that God was angry with Moses. You see, his excuses were all focused on himself. When the assignment that God gives you is so great that you can't do it by yourself, God doesn't expect you to do it by yourself. It's not about you. We may have this kind of prayer. Dear Lord, please leave me alone. Please just let me sit here in my pew on Sunday and Lord, guard my seat the last seat here in the back row. Please don't let anyone else try to sit here, Lord. You know that's my seat. And dear Lord, please let me get home quickly after the service on Sunday before these church people try to recruit me to actually do something that I don't want to do. Lord, make them understand that I'm happy and content just to show up. Heavenly Father, thank you for hearing my prayer. But I've got to go. Kickoff is only a minute away. You understand, Lord. Thanks for putting some great games on this week, and thank you for all the sports cable channels. See you next Sunday, Lord. Amen. <laughs> God doesn't choose us because we are smart or capable or intelligent or well put together. Moses was not the best qualified person. In fact, God calls us, God calls you and me, to do his work in spite of the fact that we are not. So God gets his attention, gives him an assignment. He has antinomies, which are excuses. And how does God respond to the objections? With the answer. And fourthly, we will look at the answer. And the answer is in verse 12. And he said, certainly I will be with you. The answer was his presence. The presence of God is the answer to any of the objections we have. Any of the objections we have is answered by the presence of God. When Moses suggested that he is not capable to do the job, do you know what God's answer was? God focused on who he was. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said this, God made us invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. 
He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it's just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That is the uniqueness of the Christian faith where God calls you into a personal relationship with him. In the Islamic faith, God is far away and unreachable. In one branch of the Hindu faith called Jnana Marga, the way of knowledge, the individual loses his identity as he merges with the universal being. And just as an aside, that is what Indian yoga is. You are in this state of meditation and you are meditating how your soul, your atma, is one in essence with the Brahma, the universal being. And therefore, your identity is lost in the universal being. The entire Christian faith is based on a relationship with God in which we don't lose our identity. The assignment that God gives us is much bigger than we can do or we can comprehend. And the only way that God expects us to do it is with him. I remember doing street evangelism in the 1990s with this little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws, written by Bill Bright. And we would go and meet random people on the, on the street and say, have you heard of The Four Spiritual Laws? And in five minutes, we would go through the entire booklet. And we would come to the last couple pages and say, do you want this circle to represent your life or this circle represent your life? One circle was with Jesus at the center. The other circle was with you at the center and a complete mess of it. And invariably, people would choose Jesus at the center. It's unbelievable because you had just spoken to them about five minutes of their eternal destiny and now they were willing to make a change. You could never sell anything with just five minutes of conversing with people. It's the power of God in those words. Beyond your human ability to convince and coerce and convert people. The task that God gives us is much bigger than, than we can handle or we can comprehend. And to all our objections of human frailty, God answers with divine power. And fifthly, we come to the affirmation. And the affirmation or the sign is worship. And let me read for us verses 12 through 14. And he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain, which is Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. Then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel. And I will say to them, the God of our fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is what you'll say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. The culture at that time was a polytheistic, pantheistic, syncretistic world in which every known worldview at that time believed that there were many gods, that nature had divine characteristics, and that every religion had some kind of validity, similar to some of the views we have today. In fact, the Egyptians at that time had 35 different gods for different things. One for fertility, one for war, one for this, one for that. So Moses wondered, which of these gods is this God? If he went and told the people of Israel, the God of our fathers has sent me, they would ask, 
Which one? Which God are you talking about? So Moses asks for the name of God. In fact, the name of God in the book of Genesis was the name Yahweh. The name that was used by Noah, by Abraham, by Isaac, by Jacob. But after Jacob, the sons of Jacob did not use the name of God. And as the years went by, in 400 years, the name of God was not used. So nobody at that time knew. If you said, God spoke to me, they would never think it was Yahweh who spoke. They would not have any idea to think of some of the Egyptian gods. So Moses asks, what is your name? For almost 400 years, there was silence. It seemed like there was no God. Culture had changed a lot in 400 years, but God had not changed. He was still, I am the eternal present. The people of Israel were tortured with no remedy inside. They had forgotten God, but God hadn't forgotten about them. But now was the time for rescue. After 400 years of silence, now was the time for rescue. And that time was indicated by a fire that broke the silence. Through that fire, God calls a man who was completely unqualified. He was a murderer in exile. He was a stammerer who couldn't speak well and one with absolutely no ambition. But he was available. And 1,400 years later, another rescue happened. The people of Israel had rejected God again. God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and they kept turning away and turning back, turning away and turning back. Finally, they turned completely away, and after the last prophet of the Old Testament, there was 400 years of silence. And then the silence was broken again. This time it was not by a person who was unqualified, but by the most qualified person that there ever was, for in John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And the Bible says they picked up stones to throw at him. Why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Was it because the grammar of that sentence didn't make sense? Because he said, before Abraham was born, I am. The grammar should be, before Abraham was born, I was. But you see, Jesus was referencing to the fact that he was the God of the burning bush that talked to Moses 1,400 years ago. And he uses the same name and says, I am. What was the goal of the first rescue? What was the goal of the rescue by Moses? Verse 12 says, This shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. On this mountain where they were standing right now, Mount Sinai. The entire goal of the rescue was worship. What is the goal of the second rescue, the rescue by Jesus? In Revelation chapter 22 verses 3 and 4 it says, No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. Worship is the sign of the rescue. Worship is the sign after the rescue. The rescue happens first. You see how that plays out where Moses is told, after you're rescued, you will come here and worship God. And that happened three months later in Exodus chapter 19, 20, when they worship God at that same mountain. But the worship is always after the rescue. 
That's why a person who has not been rescued cannot comprehend worship. They will think that a person who worships is an idiot because they don't comprehend worship. You can comprehend worship only after you've been rescued. The fire in the silence, therefore, is a call to rescue and therefore a call to worship. Let me tell you one last story, a couple of verses, and we're done. There were several people who were prominent in what is called as a heroic age of Antarctic exploration, the period in the late 1800s and early 1900s when adventurous men tried to be the first to reach the South Pole in Antarctica. The major players at that time attempting this feat was Roald Amundsen, Robert Scott, Douglas Mawson, and Ernest Shackleton. Keep the name of Ernest Shackleton in your mind. The person who ended up being the first to the South Pole was Amundsen in December 1911. In his 1956 address to the British Association, Sir Roman Priestley said that he would choose Scott for scientific method, Amundsen for speed and efficiency, but when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton to come. You see, ladies and gentlemen, after the race to the South Pole ended in December 1911 with Amundsen's conquest, Shackleton turned his attention to crossing the Antarctica from coast to coast past the South Pole. So he made preparations for what became the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. But disaster struck this expedition when its ship, the Endurance, became trapped in packed ice in the Weddell Sea. The Whittle Sea is way at the bottom. It got trapped in pack ice, and they sat in this boat, the Endurance, until the ice crushed the boat. And then once the boat started to sink, they, all 28 crew members, got out of the boat, got onto ice floes, and stayed on the ice floes with whatever supplies they could get. They stayed until the ice floes started to disintegrate. Then they found their way to Elephant Island, which is at the bottom, just above the Weddell Bay. They landed on Elephant Island, and this was in the winter, so Shackleton took six out of the 28 people and went on an 800-mile trip northeast toward another island where he knew there was an extra boat called the South Georgia Island, which is a small speck far away in the freezing waters in some very bad seas. But he makes the trip 800 miles to South Georgia Island, but as he comes to the island, he finds that there is a storm that prevents him from getting to the island. So he goes on the other side of the island and docks his boat and walks across the island in the middle of winter in the snow. He comes to this side and he gets this extra boat and he wants to make the trip back to Elephant Island where the remaining 22 people are. He tries four times, but due to storms, he's forced to turn back. But then in the fourth time, he makes the 800-mile trip back to Elephant Island and saves all of them. The only thing that was lost were a few fingers of the hand of Shackleton, and that was because one of his crew members had lost his mittens, and so he gave away his mittens to this crew member. And that is why Sir Raymond Priestley, three decades later, said, when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton to come, because he would rescue you at any cost.
There was a time when the whole of humanity struggled without hope and was on the trajectory to destruction. But 2,000 years ago, in the silence, there was a fire, and Jesus came for the rescue. He came and became a human being. He lived a perfect life as he walked the dusty streets of Palestine, and he died a perfect death as a criminal so that you and I could be saved. So in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 5, it reads, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And Galatians 1 verse 4 says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. I'm going to give the opportunity for two groups of people to respond to the sermon. If there's anybody here who's never committed your life to Christ, ever, and you need to be rescued, you can pray a prayer after me. The second group of people is anybody who wants to be available. You may not be qualified, you may not be the right person that you think for the job. But all around us there is the silence of godlessness. And in the midst of the silence, we need the voice of rescue. If there's anybody here who's never invited Jesus into your life, you can pray this prayer after me. It is not a magical prayer, but if it's a prayer that comes from the bottom of your heart, God will come into your life and make your life complete. You can pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. And I need to be rescued. I pray that you would come into my life. Thank you for your life, your death, your resurrection. I invite you into my life and ask you to come in and make me complete. Rescue me from myself. Rescue me from the trajectory that I'm on right now. Thank you for the promise of eternal life and the promise of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.